I am here this afternoon with Chief Anthony Campbell, and we're gonna we're gonna ask each other some questions, and our hope is to shed some light on what, first and foremost, how we both came to uh, get into policing. Anthony, my question to you: How did you how did you get into policing? Um, it's strange. I got into policing in that my mother was a New York City corrections officer. And when I came to Connecticut, I came as a student at Yale University to be a Jesuit priest because I'd gone to Fordham Preparatory School in the Bronx, fell in love with the Jesuits and felt like this is what God had called me to do. And so when I came to Yale, I was going to be a Jesuit priest. And lo and behold, uh, God in his infinite wisdom led me to a woman during Bible study who is now my wife. And so once I figured I'm not going to be a priest, what am I going to do? And so I figured maybe I would do prison ministry since my mother was a corrections officer. Mm -hmm. I started the path of applying to corrections and my mother, who had been with the New York City Department of Corrections at Rockers Island for 20 years, said, listen, being in jail is like you're serving time with the prisoners. Who you are, why don't you look for something that may intervene and keep people out of jail? Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, a week later, I saw on the side of a bus in the city of New Haven, uh, a kiosk where they were recruiting for police officers. And it said, police others as you would have others police you. I said, oh, come on. that's That's got to be a sign from God. I applied. And uh, lo and behold, that led to my career in 1998 as a police officer. So that's how I wound up in policing. How about you, Ronell? What what ultimately led you to become a police officer? You know, it's so interesting. There's There's, there's different parts of your story that I can certainly relate to. So you were in class number seven at the New Haven Police Academy? That's correct. In 1998, I was actually in class number six at the New Haven Police Academy in 1997. And my my road to policing went through the Department of Corrections as well. Um, it wasn't planned. Uh, my goal was to become a police officer early on. My dad was a police officer, and I used to watch him. And I, I knew what I wanted to be at an early age. But after my brother was uh, was brutalized by the police, um, I saw what p police brutality was um, up close and personal and how it could tear a family apart. So I wanted nothing to do with policing whatsoever. But I knew I wanted to wear that uniform because I saw my dad wear a uniform every day. So I joined the Department of Corrections. And, you know, God and in his infinite wisdom, uh, after about three years, um, having been a police officer, I, I couldn't deny what was in me, and, and that was to become a police officer. So um, as fate would have it, I did apply to the New Haven Police Department because I wanted to work where my dad worked. Um, but as it happened, um, the police department that brutalized, or the police officers that brutalized my brother happened to be New Haven police officers. Mm. It just so happened that when I applied to become a New Haven police officer, my application mis was mis mysteriously misplaced. Mm. But when one door closes, another door opens. And yeah. I, I went from jail to Yale, and I like it here at Yale. So I'm really happy, uh, and I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't amen, change amen. It's awesome. Now, that's how you got into policing. Tell me how you got to your role as the chief of the department. Oh, who? Public safety. 
Well, let's. We we promised we were going to save some material for some some future podcasts, so I'll keep it brief. But you know, I knew early on that uh, when once I joined the Yale Police Department that I wanted to do more. But more for me, being 24 years old at the time when I joined, was being a detective or being a supervisor in our investigative unit. And I made sergeant after a couple of years, and I I was assigned to our investigative unit. I loved working in the investigative unit. But after a year, the former chief, Jim Parati, reassigned me to assist the patrol commander. And I was livid. I was ready to leave the department. I wanted nothing to do with it. But again, um, I didn't realize at the time I was being prepped to learn administration. And as I learned administration, I also um, was a part of many meetings and many goings on with the Yale administration. So I started to see my role at the department a little differently. And I fell in love with the fact that, hmm, this department can make an impact. And this department is here for a reason. And there are a number of people, number of organizations, and number of offices that are depending upon us. I, I really like that. And so I knew that I I could lead this organization. And so from that point on, once I made lieutenant, I knew in my heart of hearts that I was going to be the chief. In fact, when I was a sergeant, and you could ask my wife, Robin, who you know, I said, uh, so Yale has never had an African-American chief in the history of the department. I said to my wife when we were dating, I said, I'm going to be the first African-American chief at Yale University. And she looked at me like, yeah, right. I was like, okay, watch me work. <laughs> how, how about you? So you, you know, you, I remember my wife used to tell me about uh, Anthony Campbell because you were assigned to the police academy, yep. you know, and she's like, he's having Bible study. There's a choir in the department now. There's all these different things. I'm like, are y'all policing or are y'all running ministry in the police department? Um, how, and you ended up being the chief at one of the most tumultuous times in the last 20 years in that department. So tell us about that. Well, you know, it's really interesting. And, and you know, I, I give God all the glory because that was never my goal. My goal was, you know, they asked me to work at the academy. I was a training officer there, working, supporting my family. And then in 2006, you know, I was working extra duty and I got hurt. Um, a car driven by a suspect, intentionally hit me, paralyzed me, and I was out of work for 38 months. I had to learn how to use my right arm again, how to walk yeah. again, and they actually told me that I probably wouldn't be able to come back as a police officer, but I just had faith and believed that God had a plan for me, and they, sure enough, I started healing, took the exam. Um, while I was out, I was actually finishing my div degree at the Divinity School here at Yale, got my degree and simultaneously came back to the department, took the sergeant's exam, same time as your wife did, became a sergeant. And it was like coming back, it was like starting a career all over again. Mm -hmm. And being a sergeant, working the night shift, working in patrol, little by little building my credibility in the department. And so by 2013, uh, you know, the department had gone through scandal. We had the FBI come in, we had chiefs leave, we had officers, high-ranking officers arrested in scandals. And for about 10 years, we didn't have a chief from the department. We always had someone from the outside because of the yeah. scandal. Mm -hmm. And when they brought 
Dean Esterman in um, in 2011, um, he started really changing things for the department, how we did things, our comstat. And when he came, he saw me, met me, he had interviewed everyone, and he said, listen, I talk to people in the department, they tell me you're a person of God. He's like, I haven't found faith, it's never been my thing, but I need someone to be like a conscience for me. So I was like, I could do that. So he said, I need you to take the lieutenant's exam. So four months later, I took the exam and scored number one, and I became a lieutenant. So he took me from the academy and said, I'm going to put you over the responsibility of the department and put me as head of the internal affairs division. So I did that for about a year. And then he said, hey, I want you to come and be an assistant chief. And that started the process. So I was the assistant chief and basically kind of his counselor at the same time. And unfortunately, he started having some some issues, as as people sometimes do. And uh, he 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 ruled the department with an iron fist. He, mm-hmm. he ruled the department with terror, and um, that ultimately led him to having confrontations with the community. And on the other side, I was the community person, always you know marrying officers. Preaching in the community, well-known in the community. And so when the chief ultimately got into a a confrontation that reached the mayor's level, she reached out to me and said, listen, would you run the department as an interim chief? And I said, yeah. Um, And I said, can I make changes? She said, you're the chief. You can do whatever needs to be done. And so with that information, I basically reached out to you and a few other great leaders and started running the department, and we brought about great change. We were able to run the department in a positive way, in the way the mayor asked me to, with with compassion and with love. And we changed the city in such a way that we reduced the homicides to the lowest level they had ever been, the lowest number of shootings the city had ever had since it was keeping records. And I think we brought about some positive change. So it was a great, great experience. And then came the time to retire. And uh, next thing I know, some things that happened here. And uh, when you reached out and said, hey, brother, you know, would you think about coming here? I was like, it's like a homecoming for me. So that's how I wound up here. So it's, it's great to be back home. It, it, thank you. And I think you were, I don't know where you were, but uh, thank you for answering that call. Absolutely. I was <laughs> in Florida. I was in Florida. <laughs> I remember that. You know, um, I'll say this before I, I ask the next question. I During that time when, when you became the chief after uh, Chief Esserman left, in addition to, you know, doing so many other things to include marrying police officers. You also brought about, from what I saw, a sense of the spirit of the law um, while serving as a leader. You were that servant. You are that servant leader. So, you know, that did not go unnoticed. Um, So, so Chief, you, you, you oversee uh, patrol in addition to some other units. And one of the questions I I have for you as the university begins to welcome back employees, um, what do we want the Yale community? What do we want those members of our community who've been gone for over a year now to know about the Yale police and even more broadly, Yale public safety? I think, you know, Chief, I think the number one thing we want them to know is that, while they've been gone, we've been here, and that we've been making sure that um, they would have a safe environment to come back to, and that those who were working here, that we've 
watching over them, but I also want them to know that we've changed. Um, the world has changed and we have changed. Um, we no longer do things the way we used to. The status quo is no longer. Um, we now have a differential response model, which starts from the very moment they make contact with us. From the moment they call uh, communications, no longer is it Yale dispatch um, or Yale police. Now it's Yale dispatch. Is this a police fire mm -hmm. medical emergency? Um, you did that. You know, that we've made those changes. That the officers that, you know, we've introduced things like uh, um, a comfort dog that we, we now have in the department who's there I, because Lord knows with COVID and mass shootings and all the other things that have happened around our country and in our state, people need comfort right now. And that with mental health crises, which many more people are having these days, we do understand that officers may not be the ones that they want to see in uniform coming to deal with yeah. a welfare check. So now we have our crisis intervention unit that responds in plain clothes. And there are a myriad number of other changes that have happened, and they've all been done in the mindset of making this a more welcoming environment and that we want to educate them that there are a lot of materials that are out there that will help them to understand mm -hmm. who we are now and the changes that have happened, but also that we are undergoing a process, a process which is in much part due to 21CP, which you brought in, mm -hmm. and that we are going to accomplish the 88 recommendations. We want them to know the ones we've done, the ones that we're working on, and that we're, we're in process, um, that this is a process of transformation for us, but that we're here to serve them and that we're looking forward to having them back. So, Amen. And I know that just from a patrol standpoint, but you oversee public safety. You oversee the whole of it. What do you want them to know as they are coming back? Um, wow. While public safety has changed. Wow. You know, thinking thinking broadly, I, I would I want people to know that. I mean, you talked about how we've grown, how we're evolving as well. I think it's important that people understand and know that we are fully aware that safety means different things to different people and how safety is achieved is important. I want people to know that we are culturally empathetic. I want people to know that, you know, there was a time if people said, Ronell, why does the Yale police exist? And I would respond with our mission or even in some instances be more succinct to keep the campus safe. I think Yale Public Safety exists um, for, for, for another reason, uh, much more thoughtful reason. And that is to ensure that people can work, live and study in a safe environment. That is really important. And, and, and living, working and studying speaks to our, all of our constituencies. I want people to know that we are constantly working to improve. We're committed to continuous improvement and that we're well aware of the concern um, of, of that many may have about policing and how it's done. More importantly, that we don't want to police people. We want to police with our community. We don't want people thinking that policing is being done to them. but. 
you know, that's the police department. We also have our security department. As you know, uh, public safety has four uh, verticals, police, security, uh, security systems, and the Office of Emergency Management. And we are all working very closely to make certain that the services that we provide to our community are right fitted, they're, they're appropriate, in that they're done with the utmost professionalism. And, we're, and, we, and we, we want to hear feedback from members of our community. We want to hear the feedback. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, a lot of that change that had to come about had to come from some really thoughtful, um, intentional thinking about things that need to change or things that are issues that need to be addressed. And that brings to mind the next question I have is there's so much going on in the world right now, especially when it comes to policing, public safety. You know, what keeps you up at night? What do you think about that that, that keeps you up at night? Wow. There's there's a lot that keeps me up at night. I, I probably I, I don't get enough sleep. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I'll I'll, I'll say because I'm sure we're going to be doing more talking. And if you ask me that question tomorrow, I can probably come up with some other things that are keeping me up at night. But right now, what's keeping me up at night is, um, is, is, is this, this country and, and, and what's happening to it around race, race and the police. Um, I, I just, I feel like we are going backwards. I feel like I feel like we really need to hear one another. And I think we need to listen. I think we don't need to, we need to really hear and understand one another right now. That's keeping me up at night. As a father of two children, um, we get to a certain point in our lives where we ask ourselves, what type of world are our children going to inherit? You know, and, and then layer on top of that, being a police officer, I, I'll, I can remember last summer when protests and demonstrations were happening around the country. One of the, I, I wore a uniform on, on a particular day because I knew that we were going to be out in the field. And the same way I watched my dad button his shirt and put his uniform on, my students, because they were doing homeschooling, um, watched me as I buttoned up my white shirt on that day. But they were looking at me button up my white shirt and also look at Good Morning America. And, and seeing what was happening around the country. And I can see in, in both my children, who were both high school at the time, they were, they had this look on their face like they were confused. They're seeing what they're seeing on TV and what's happening to the police and hearing how people feel about the police. But they're looking at me like, that's my dad. Mm-hmm. And it was then I realized that the same uniform, that shirt I was putting on, that brought me so much pride when I saw my dad when I was a young kid, as I was stepping out of that house, that that uniform symbolized pain for so many people. And I think it's going to take a long, it's going to be a long time before we start to bring back the trust um, for many. But a journey of a million miles began with the first step. And, you know, as we all go through periods of time in our careers where we, we start to reflect on our careers and say to ourselves, is it time for me to move on? I went through that period last summer and then I stopped and I thought, um, and it was like, God was talking to me. He says, if not you, then who? Amen. If not you, then who? Especially now. I didn't bring you this far to leave you. 
I prepared you for this. Now go do your job. So I would say, you know, race keeps me up at night right now because, you know, I, I, that's a whole nother story. I can talk about how I grew up and I had some really good experiences, but it's concerning. And I, I think it's, 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 it's problematic for this country right now. And I, I think in policing, we are in a, on uncharted waters. Amen. You know, it's, How about yourself, it's, Chief? it's funny because um, I think a lot of what's keeping you up keeps me up. But I also think <laughs> about um, every time I turn on the TV, it seems like for a little while during the pandemic, we went through a lull where we weren't having these mass shootings. And so now, you know, every time I look, there's a mass shooting. And so you've got COVID where people are already anxious because of, you know, the virus, uh, vaccines, people having vaccine hesitancy, um, particularly in communities of color because of things that have happened in the past with, with you know, abuses um, by the medical field. Um, and now you're having these mass shootings, which really puts people on edge and particularly on a, a college campus where people are going to be returning. Um, I think about, you know, now that the vaccinations are happening, we're going to have a, a in-person commencement. And that means right. that there's a gathering of people. So I really want to make sure that, A, they're safe, you know, and, and, and doing what they need to from a social distancing standpoint and staying safe, but also that we don't give an opening for anyone who may have malicious intent harm someone. Um, and we're doing that during a time while when one of the premier trials is happening in our country that really, that trial is not really about abuse of authority. That trial is, is race is on trial right now. Right. And outcome can be devastating for this country. And it's not just, you know, that state and that city that is being watched. The world is watching. And so I, I really at night think about, you know, if we don't get this right, if we don't address these issues head on, um, you know, I never think of our country coming to an end or falling because of an outside invasion. I think of our country falling apart because of internal turmoil. And yeah. right now there's more internal turmoil than I think there has been in a long time. So that's that's really what keeps me up at night. You know, I I I had a conversation just last week with um, the author of the book uh, Urban Trauma. I, her name escapes me. You know her, mm-hmm. but um, we were just it was just a check in, and she was sharing with me, and I agree with her that there's another pandemic on its way, and that pandemic has to do with with trauma. And, and, and people being in crisis as a result of these just constant, you know, it's just, a, just being in, in a constant state of anxiety around the pandemic, around race, around not being able to put food on the table, about just, I mean, so many people are food insecure. There's just so many things that are going on that sometimes, as we were talking earlier today, it seems like people are really wound up. And we have to come to work each day, understanding that, keeping our own feelings in check and what we have going on, but understanding that people are really wound up. And, you know, it's 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 not because they're just they're choosing to be wound up. It's because of the impact 
of so many things that are happening right now um, in this country uh, to people in in our community. And and you make a good point, which brings me to my my next question, which is, and it's my last question. You know, people are coming, bringing this trauma with them. We're having our our a lot of our faculty and staff return uh, back to campus, and our role has changed, and thereby their role has changed. Um, what do you think is the role of each member of the community when it comes to crime prevention? Chief, more more so than other, more so than ever, I truly believe that we have to look out for one another. We have to look out for one another like never before. And, and what that means is sometimes being a good neighbor, okay? Just because we work with people and, you know, we don't necessarily associate uh, with each other out of work. Well, at work, we're neighbors, you know? Being a good neighbor. Um, it's not about calling the police. It's about looking out for one another. It's about being an active bystander, okay? It's about using your voice to call out what's wrong. It's about, you know, being someone who's going to to be helpful when someone is in need. I have not said anything about crime. I'm if, if we can get the things that I'm talking about right, the crime will take care of itself. Absolutely. But, but far too often, I, I find that you know, before the pandemic, people were just too busy to look out for one another. And I think right now we need to be good neighbors and, and for a number of reasons. One, to keep keep each other safe, but also because of what I just described, the, 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 the emotional trauma, the anxiety, and all the things that people have going on. If someone seems like they're having a bad day, it's probably because they're having a bad day, you know. And, and, you know, it's great that you said that because I agree 100%. And I think it goes to the heart of the reality that far too often in the past, people looked for the police to be the panacea. You know, whether it's a parking complaint, uh, a larceny, an unwanted homeless person, you know, we were called for everything. But the reality is, it's the responsibility of everyone to keep the entire community safe. It's about community wellness, which is what you just described. And as long as we focus on that community wellness and everyone plays their role and looks out for one another and realizing that in the process of them doing that for others and others doing it for them, we as a community are keeping one another safe, whether the threat is an active shooter or whether the threat is a virus that we can't see, we're looking out for one another and it'll be a much safer community. So I think I think that's exactly right. And that's what we really need to address. I think far too often we've been looking at, you know, kind of like the logistics of things, mm -hmm. forgetting, as you said, the spirit of who we are as human mm -hmm. beings. If we get that connection back, and I think in many ways COVID maybe has sparked that, that reality that we have to connect as human beings before we can ever really be safe, you know? I think what did, what did Dr. Martin Luther King say? Um, if all of us aren't safe, then no one is safe. And that is, right. that is the reality. Uh, we have to make sure that we are all safe because if one of us isn't safe, none of us is safe. So 
it's great. Hey, you know what? I, I think we should end on that note. And uh, Chief, I totally agree. We, we have gone from community policing to advancing community wellness. And that's how we're going to move forward. Chief, I want to thank you for your time. You're doing a heck of a job. Keep up the good work. And uh, perhaps we can get together again next week and we can ask each other some more questions. Roger that, Chief. Same here, brother. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. All right. Great I'll day. see you in the hallway. Roger that. <laughs> okay, man.